Welcome to Miranda Warnings Roundtable, discussing legal issues and current events. I'm joined on the roundtable by Liz Benjamin and Professor Vin Bonventry. Liz is the Managing Director at Marathon Strategies, a public relations and communications firm, and former host of Capital Tonight, a political and policy show focusing on New York State politics. And Professor Vin Bonventry, Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School and publisher of the New York Court Watcher, devoted to commenting on the U.S. Supreme Court and the New York State Court of Appeals. This week on Miranda Warnings Roundtable, we have an election 2022 wrap-up. Despite a closer-than-usual election in New York State, Governor Hochul and the Democrats swept statewide office. Federally, the predicted red wave never happened. Democrats may actually gain a seat in the Senate and end up with a close minority in the House. This may be the best midterm for the Democrats with a Democrat in the White House since John Kennedy. The Democrats were aided by a, the SCOTUS decision in Dobbs, and it could have been even better for the Democrats in Congress were it not for the New York Court of Appeals decision in Harkenreiter, rejecting the legislature's redistricting proposal and influencing the four New York House seats that flipped Republican, perhaps enough to make a difference as to which party has majority in the House of Representatives. And I submit to you, the, each of you, Liz and Vin, has there ever been a New York Court of Appeals case that has had a more significant impact on party control in the House of Representatives? I'm sorry, I, I, there was something in your premise that I really disagreed with. There wasn't well, a, red, there always you know, is. a red wave that didn't that didn't materialize. I mean, it's it's like predicted. A, a red, it was red predicted. ripple or, it was, it, okay, it, was it wasn't predicted. a tidal wave. Yes, I get it, but there was, Republicans right. did perform better than they were supposed to if, in New before York. Before you apparently. disagree with me, answer the question. Has there ever been a New York Court of Appeals case that Not in my had, memory, had a but more I'm significant impact? Vin, anything I, more significant she, she, than this? Liz did not want to answer your question. She I just know. wanted to criticize what you said. So I will yeah. answer the question. <laughs> and in, in modern history, no, I don't think there has been a decision of the Court of Appeals that so affected the, uh, the election. I mean, look, you know, you had a redistricting by the Democrats, which certainly would have help the Democrats retain control and perhaps gain seats, gain seats. With the Court of Appeals decision, uh, which then sent, you know, threw out what the Democrats had done and then sent it back to a trial judge who then sent it to some st statistics student, right, to come up with what would be, you know, a reliable uh, redistricting, the, the Republicans gained seats. It became pretty obvious the Republicans were going to gain seats. So by and large, I mean, if you want to cast blame on what happened in New York, blame that is that the Republicans gained seats and the Democrats lost, that certainly falls right on the shoulders of the New York Court of Appeals, which is not to say hey, its whoa, decision was on, wrong, but that's hold what on, the Court of on, Appeals hold did. On, hold on. Hold yeah. on. Hold on. The, the, you're, you're blaming the Court of Appeals. Like, far be it from me to be like. No, 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 no. I'm just I saying it was a, not blaming. blaming. If, you're a, a if you're a significant Democrat decision. 
And you want to cast okay. blame okay. for the Republicans okay. gaining seats. Yeah. Really? If you're a Democrat you should, and you want to cast blame, you should cast it at the court. Why don't you cast it at your own party who drew the lines to begin with? Oh, they certainly are to blame as well. They started it. Okay, just to make sure that we're clear where no, blame no, no. is no, you it, and it I starts agree. at the root. You and I agree <laughs> with that, but we we expect politicians to do that. I, there's no blame. What I'm what the question that was posed yes, was did this, have, no, but did, did this have a significant impact on the House of Representatives? Okay, okay. first of all, I'm sticking yes. up for Liz on this one. There is blame because the Democrats right. overreached. They overreached. But there's also blame for the Court of Appeals. What are they doing sending the case back to a trial court judge? If anything, they should have given directions to the legislature and had the legislature redraw the districts. That's what should have been done. But instead, they give it to this, like I said, this trial court judge who then relies on this student of statistics. I mean, I think that's pretty preposterous. Well, yeah, there was well, another, there was another case that had a significant impact on the federal election, which is the Dobbs decision. Yeah, uh, Liz, you have any thoughts on how much of an impact the Dobbs decision had on the vote? I and, think it was, it was really mixed because, you know, if you look, if you watched the election, um, for example, uh, the congressional race that Pat Ryan won in the Hudson Valley the first one against Molinaro, then subsequently Molinaro ran in a new district and Pat Ryan Ryan ran in a new district and it was all a redistricting disaster. But Ryan really was focused on um, Dobbs and abortion rights, like every commercial, right? That and the fact that he was a veteran, which is an interesting approach, not germane in this particular conversation, but it was Dobbs, 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 all about Dobbs, right? Meanwhile, Kathy Hochul's messaging was similarly about Dobbs, right? And I thought it, it really fell flat because she wasn't rising to meet the moment of public safety, which is what Lee Zeldin was focused on. She also castigated him for being too close to Trump and too extreme and et cetera, et cetera. But I think she misread the room until it was a little late in the game and the campaign and she had to play catch up on public safety. So I would argue at the federal level, it seemed that the Dobbs decision, not only in New York, but elsewhere in congressional races, certainly did probably mute the red wave's power to some degree. And also this supposed umbrella regarding concern about you know, the threats to democracy, which we can get into, but I'm not really sure what that means. It means something different to everyone. It might mean January 6th, might also mean that you know, Donald Trump is, a, um, you know, is an election denier, might also mean that Joe Biden is threatening democracy if you happen to be a Democrat, a Republican of that stripe. But the point is, at the federal level, Dobbs, I think, in congressional races, yes. But at the state level, it was a mistake to focus largely on Dobbs because New Yorkers feel, for better or worse, that, in fact, uh, abortion is rather a settled matter here. Right. So it wasn't nearly the kind of risk that other states felt it was. Don't forget, in those states which had a vote on abortion rights, whether it was to enshrine abortion rights or to reject abortion restrictions and abortion bans. Uh, the Dobbs decision took a beating, I mean, because the people overwhelmingly, right, um, decided that no, they, they wanted abortion rights. They wanted women to have that choice. In New York, of course, what you had is you had the, you know, the candidate who lost, you know, referring to Hochul's crime wave. Look, I mean, 
anybody with an IQ above 50 knows this is not Hochul's crime wave, but that's well, the kind of nonsense that sells with the politics. I thought, and she, I thought that was am I allowed to finish? No, no. And I'll tell you why. Eventually. I'll tell you why. Eventually. I'll tell you why. Because this whole thing to me was dog whistle about a woman who wasn't able yes. to be tough enough on crime. Right. And that really gets me. Oh, um, you know, I, it sticks it. in my craw in a serious way. Because yeah. what? Because she's not a man. She can't fight crime sufficiently. Like yeah. that's baloney. So yeah. I think that that was the implication. And that uh, certainly was not something she called out. If I had been her, I might have. Yes. Yeah. Well, she well. She also. This is why you're not her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're suggesting that the only reason I'm not governor is is because I'm not judicious enough to be governor, then I think oh, there's a whole Lord. lot of problems besides David, that. David, can you imagine if Liz was the governor, how much fun we would have at the round table? She wouldn't be here, but we would be allowed to say things about her that we won't say about her now because she's one of us. <laughs> I might, I might <laughs> deign to visit you once in a while. But, uh, you know, the, the crime and inflation, you know, was being blamed on Hochul, being blamed on the Democrats, even though with regard to crime, it's a national problem. Inflation is a uh, is a global problem. But, you know, these these kinds of niceties, these kinds of distinctions, you know, they're not the kinds of things that sway voters generally. And Hochul was a little deaf to the whole notion of crime. I mean, until the last couple of weeks of the election, you know, she really didn't come out strongly. Well, she also said something stupid um, in the debate where she was like, I don't understand why people think this is an issue or something along those lines. Yeah. I don't I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it was not a wise. Yeah, I think response. I think that just came out wrong. I think she meant, why is he only talking about this issue? Uh well, because that's what they, they, that's what they clear, always talk about. The Republicans, yes. But just to be clear, um, or frequently, the, the issue regarding when you say crime was a national issue, it's a national issue at the local level. And I think that's what the distinction yeah. is between mobs and this and, and criminal justice. Yeah. When you talk about yeah. bail reform or raise the age or anything else, that those right. are state level policies that impact public safety on the ground inside a respective okay. state. Dobbs is a federal decision that 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 makes uh, abortion, you know, um, illegal sort of. I mean, kicks it back down to the states, really. But I think the perception is when, when you talk about public safety, I mean, first of all, even if you're a libertarian, you believe that the first responsibility of government is to keep people safe. Like that's the whole reason yeah. government exists. So that's really where the rubber hits the road in terms of policies that the legislature or a local government can make that impacts constituents directly. Right. So, you, you know, right or wrong, Governor Hochul kept her eye on the prize and ran a campaign that was certainly strong enough to win by almost six percentage points. Uh, the Democrats, at least statewide, uh, swept uh, Attorney General and Controller and uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, so what are we going to see now? Now the election's over. Uh, there was a little. There's a little bit of movement in the Senate or Assembly. Not a much. Not enough to make a difference. Uh, what are we going to see now coming forward? What's the mandate from from this election well, in the state? At the state level, there is no the mandate. That's level. the problem. I mean, you can't get elected by the margin that Kathy Hochul was elected by and say that you have a mandate. I mean, not with a straight face. Bill Can't you have a mandate for moderation? 
No, I mean, no, you never have a mandate for moderation. Can't Nobody you? cares about moderation. But just in all seriousness, Bill de Blasio, um, you know, won the mayoral uh, uh, race with the first time around. And, you know, w- with like, I don't know, less than 50% of the vote. You could not argue that the man had a mandate. It was a primary with multiple candidates and nobody got a plurality, right? For a majority, if I remember correctly. The, but then he nevertheless, you know, declared himself having a mandate. So when it only takes a vote to win and everything, anything that matters is a win. She won, she won and she's governor, right? Like that's what matters. But to suggest that she didn't run on a really strong platform. She didn't run on a real vision of anything for New York per se. Uh, she ran to keep the job, to be historic, to break the glass ceiling, et cetera, and so forth. And also because she was not Lee Zeldin. That's not a vision. And so I don't see what the mandate's for. The so mandate is for her to do that. So we are where we are subsequent to the election where we have Governor Hochul and we have the Democrats. Where, where are we going? What, what do we see? Are we moving to the left? Are we moving to the right? Or are we, are we, it, do we have a mandate for moderation? Well, well she is now the elected governor. And I think she will feel a lot more free and powerful to really do what she wants to do. I mean, she didn't get a mandate in the sense that the Democrats, there are overwhelmingly more Democrats than Republicans in this state. And that, that wasn't reflected in her in her victory. Right. That wasn't reflected. It was it was much too close when you consider how many more Democrats in this state there are than Republicans. On the other hand, right, she is the first woman who was elected. She's now been elected. I think that's a heck of a lot different when you're an elected governor as opposed to an accidental governor. And I think there's no way of getting around it in the sense that in the democratic system, she was elected and she wasn't just elected by, you know, a percentage point. It was, it was almost 6%. That's pretty good. That's a pretty darn good margin. So I think that's a pretty darn good margin where she could say that her view, the Democrat, generally the Democrats view is what won and what what New Yorkers what want. I don't think there's mean? any way to get the around Democrats that. view in New York. The Democrats view could be anything from socialist Democrats, universal health care and, you know, 100 percent renewable energy tomorrow to, you know, the pragmatist Western right. Democrat right. view of something entirely different. Fair, fair point, Liz. So what does it mean? What does this this election result mean then for the state? First of all, it's difficult to say exactly. There's a sort of a meme out there right now in the in the Albany ether that the legislature is going to be is going to reassert its power, its dominance. Right. They, yeah. they, uh, Andrew Cuomo, for better or for worse, was uh, a guy with an iron fist and the legislature really chafed against that. Kathy Hochul, even though she's been elected and she broke the glass ceiling and now she's, you know, elected governor and it's not accidental and all the rest of it is not Andrew Cuomo. So what kind of relationship she's going to have with the legislature remains to be seen. You do have um, a solidification of a big turnover in the assembly. Lots of people lost in the assembly. Very weird, right? Very strange. You also had, I mean, convent, con, con, um, comparatively speaking to, to prior years, but also you have a situation there where you're having an enormous amount of churn. So you have some big ticket committees like insurance, health, environment, housing, and a number of others that are open, that are, those are some very senior positions and, and fairly significant in the assembly. And once people get bumped up to that, they will open up committees below them, the ones that they currently hold, and there will be churn in in, in the conference. 
So we don't know who's going to be where. We don't know how much the upstate conference might try to forge a relationship and an alliance, say, with suburban conferences in on Long Island and maybe reassert some control. The progressives are definitely unhappy with the uh, slow pace of what they consider to be reform and, um, and appropriate movement to the left in Albany. And it remains to be seen if the Working Families Party really starts to um, exert some control and uh, take a chit for what they say was getting her over the finish line in the final weeks of the campaign, well, then she'll have to move to the left. But I don't, I don't know. It's too early. It's too early. Yeah, to but I mean, certainly Hochul being a Buffalo Democrat is a heck of a lot different than a Manhattan Democrat, a New York City Democrat. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not as though, you know, Andrew Cuomo was this flag-waving progressive at all, at all. So um, it's not necessarily that uh, that Hochul is going to be any less liberal or any more conservative than Andrew Cuomo was. The other thing is, I mean, if what we hear, but Liz, you would know better than, than I on this, if what we hear is true, Hochul is a heck of a lot more likable than is much more liked, much more appealing um, to the legislators than Andrew Cuomo was. And that might help an awful lot. You know, sometimes it helps if, you know, the legislature doesn't hate the governor, which apparently most of the legislators did uh, when Andrew Cuomo was the governor. They apparently like this woman, right? Well, that's fine. But also- who's is, that a, is that accurate, you think, or what? Yeah. They were pretty you, good to her at the end of the session. They weren't thrilled at the way that the session went down. But I mean, are they talking the same way they would talk about Andrew Cuomo? Behind, I mean, behind his back about what a jerk he was? No. A lot of people just couldn't stand him. Yes, fine. But that that's nice. And that in 10 cents will get you nothing because a cup of coffee these days is a dollar. I mean, like the, the point is she's going to have to put together a real government, right? She was yeah. sort of, she had this like duct tape government. She inherited it after Andrew Cuomo had to leave. Now she doesn't have a budget director anymore because he went to run, I mean, this incredibly uh, lucrative position in Puerto Rico, uh, which is an island half in the dark all the time. I, I mean, so it, it's going to be an interesting energy position for him. He's the longest- I love student. him, by the way. He was He's my lovely. student. He's very, very lovely and very, uh, very capable. But, yeah. you know, so he was the longest serving budget director, I think. Yeah. So in, at least in modern times. So that's going to be a loss. Um, you know, it's an institutional memory that she's going to have to replace. Word on the street is that there's other people who are going to be leaving and that there are going to be changes in the agencies and changes all over the place. So, you know, this is not unusual when uh, a candidate, a new governor comes in, but she's not really a new governor. Really, she's like sort of like a reinvented old governor. So it's 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 a building of an administration, a rebuilding of an administration. And so it remains to be seen who's going to be in positions of power and how effective they're going to be at negotiating what could be a difficult budget. Yeah, but I think our, there were a lot of people who didn't think she was really the governor yet, but now they have to because she was elected. You know, I mean, she fell into this position, you know, um, you know, because of what happened with Andrew Cuomo. So it was an accident. She became governor. But now she's got the authority of having campaigned and won the election. I think it's going to be a completely different game for her now. Right. Well, she's I mean, got that. But, but when David says, like, what to expect, I mean, I'm not sure that we know as of yet. Well, 
We're going to find out fairly soon. <laughs> we better. <laughs> some very, very important things such as, you know, who she's going to make chief judge of the Court of Appeals. Ah. That will tell us a lot. Will it? That will so tell if, she, if you're saying if she kowtows to the liberals and puts in place whatever. Well, then we know. Then we know that she she feels that she must, as you say, kowtow to them. Oh, I'm sorry. And, what would you say, Mr. Venn? Uh, I would say that she understands that that's part of the party of which she is a member. That's part of uh, the group that elected her. Um, on the other hand, you know, if, for example, look, it's, if Zeldin was elected, you know, he probably was going to put up somebody that's, you know, law and order. So, oh, I'm on the side of law and order. I don't want to, you know, coddle the criminals anymore like Hochul wanted to, you know, that kind of crap. And God knows what or who he would have appointed to be chief. I think uh, the chief that she will nominate will be a heck of a lot different than um, who Zeldin would have nominated. So I think that's going to be one of the first clues. And if she nominates somebody who's really quality, real quality, not just, oh, this, uh, this, one was a defense counsel, which a lot of the progressives, I mean, you know, like you have to have a defense counsel in order to be liberal, right? To understand the rights of the accused. I mean, this is such nonsense, you know, but if you get a judge who, you know, is a brilliant judge, who's a good leader, you know, that will tell us- Are you an suggesting there are no her. brilliant conservative judges in New York? No, there are. No, of course there are brilliant conservative judges, but I would doubt that she's going to put- um, a conservative on the court. Um, well, isn't the, isn't the, isn't the word? I have no reason like, to believe Zeldin would have put a brilliant conservative on. No, the, probably not. You're going to find somebody a, who's law and order. A, a political ideologue on the court. Yeah. But also, I mean, we, I think uh, David and I actually talked about this yesterday, I guess it was, but the, with a question about the judiciary committees um, in each legislative house uh, you know, there, it's not a committee that we, well, it's a committee that NISPA is concerned with. It's not a committee that we talk about all that frequently right. um, on the legislative level, but certainly has some juice. I mean, the uh, whoever the nominees will be would be um, would come through there, would they not? They come through the Senate. They're not going right. to come yeah. through the, yeah. Yeah, well, they well, come this, the Yeah, the Assembly doesn't really have a role in no. the selection. And we're assuming that um, Senator Hoyleman retains retains uh, the committee in the Senate. I would expect so. I would I, imagine. I, I don't know why he would want to give that up. Unless there's churn. I mean, who knows is what I'm saying. I'm not suggesting that he, I, I've not heard anything to the contrary, but you know, it's just a time after an election is just a very volatile time when a lot of surprising things occur. People come, people go, people get named to other stuff. I mean, it's just, it's, um, there's a lot going on, but I will say just as an aside, because we didn't talk about it earlier on, when we were talking about federal, the position that New York holds right now is really quite amazing, considering that we're like one of those, you know, um, states at the border, right? It's like California, New York. It's that famous New Yorker uh, cover, California, New York, and like everything yeah. in the middle and, and out, ostensibly out of touch with the rest of the nation. And yet we're in this really significant position potentially from a, from a national standpoint. Lee Zeldin's being named as a potential RNC chair. Chuck Schumer gets to be majority leader again by the hair of his teeth. Elise Stefanik, because of the majority in, in uh, the Republicans that they took in the House, which, by the way, they took thanks to us in four seats that yeah. flipped, uh, she gets to be the number three Republican. And, and 
Hakeem Jeffries is going to be the heir apparent for Nancy Pelosi. That's pretty yeah, significant. That's good. Yeah, I know. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's really. Well, look at that, Vin. Does I just everybody want please like everybody put in your respective date books? Vin Von Ventry said I was right. No, that was so. He didn't brilliant. say you're right. He you just know? said he didn't think of it. He just said he didn't. Well, think he didn't of think it. of he it. Didn't he didn't it. Say he also right. just said it was brilliant. He but said you are right. right. That's why David invites you, Liz, because you're able to put all these different no, David invites political pegs together that you know some of us don't think of. You know? David invites me because I no, threaten be, him. Well, you've, you've got it. You always have a different viewpoint. Yeah. No matter usually what. Usually wrong. No matter what. Because I'm not it's a lawyer. It's always different. <laughs> but let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, it, I mean, you're you are correct there, and I will say that, and we can record this and repeat it later. But I mean, look at uh, we might have now Hakeem Jeffries as the minority leader of the in the House, and and we'll have the Senate majority leader, both from New York. Uh, any, I mean, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. What does that mean for us to have? Well, given the fact that Hakeem Jeffries won't be in a position of power, it won't mean anything at all necessarily. Not right now, but it's, but because we've seen the pendulum swing, the political pendulum swings. Right, it's not unusual, which is the thing that that we're not really talking about all that much for um, the midterm elections to be bad for the party in power in the White House. Actually, this was a remarkably good election for Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, right. people are not talking about that. It was really remarkable. And I mentioned it right at the beginning. Well, he's about to turn 80, which is kind of nuts. And Donald Trump already announced for 2024. So, you know, we're already into the next election cycle. But expectations are that the Democrats at some point are going to take back the majority. And if and when that occurs, then assumedly, Hakeem Jeffries will then subsequently rise to the position yeah. of speaker. I don't remember when there was the last the speaker was from New York the last time around. Well, that would be incredible to have the uh, both. Well, that's the assuming Senate, that the, last the Senate leader and the House of Representatives leader. And, and the probability is that the Democrats will win the presidency two years from now. And the probability is they will win back the House. They will win back the House when the Democrats, which means that uh, Hakeem Jeffries will, will take over. And we will, but we will see if, over the next two years how much sway he has with mm. the Democrats in the House of Representatives, we'll see. And I would imagine- I mean, look, the job doesn't change. Like the, the, the job of what Nancy Pelosi, was brilliant, is not, she's not passing away and she's certainly not leaving Congress either, but she's stepping down from a leadership position, but has been brilliant in her yeah. tactical capabilities of keeping those cats in oh. the same room. Yeah. I mean, that is just an amazing, amazing capability that she has to forge deals, to, um, you know, to, to rule over a conference that is unruly yeah. and disparate as they are. Not to say that the Republicans are not, and they have their, they're now having their own internal battles, but it's just, uh, you know, a difficult challenge. It's basically what we see on the state level um, that is recreated at the federal level and at a, a slightly larger um, playing field, which is to say that you have the, the squad the Alexandria Cortez's of the world, yeah. and then and and the um you know extreme liberal uh, agenda that they have, and then you've got you know people like well, I mean Hakeem is fairly liberal, but you, you know you have people like uh, in the Senate would be Mansion, but you've got more progressive, uh, I mean pragmatic Democrats who come from other states, so you've got to manage that situation. Yeah, and there's there's not just ideological. Um, divergence, but also geographical, 
economical. I mean, all of these, you know, uh, representatives, they come from different states, which, which have different problems. They have different problems. And so something may sound good to the leader of the House of Representatives because that leader comes from New York or comes from California, but it may not sound good at all to somebody, to a Democrat who happens to be from West Virginia or Kansas. What about Kansas? Kansas elected a few Democrats. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And mm. uh, Pennsylvania, about which is always said, you know, there's Philadelphia at one end, there's Pittsburgh at the other, and then there's Alabama in between. <laughs> I mean, the Dems did pretty darn well in Pennsylvania. So, uh, yeah, it's really- Well, that, that opens a whole question about, you know, well, whatever, let's not get into the Fetterman race, but it, it, I think there's a lot of, there, there's also an interesting kind of subtext. There's a couple interesting subtexts. One is also this question of the election deniers who were not successful. Um, and what the what it means when you look at the exit or the polling data that um, that Siena, for example, was involved in, that finds that like this vast majority, 70 some odd percent of voters say that they're concerned about the future of democracy in America. I don't even know what that means. Democracy. Yeah, but, that, but that also includes the election deniers who are concerned about democracy. Yes. They yes. think democracy is falling apart because yes. Donald Trump actually won by a landslide. Yeah. I just I find this whole thing when you say, yeah, you don't you you're not agreeing that he won by a landslide, are you? Who? Donald Trump? No. Yeah, you. The the point the point is, though, I think what we take away from this election is I I, I participated on a panel yesterday, which um, my former colleague, Bill Hammond, who's just a brilliant guy was on and he works for the Empire Center and he focuses on health policy. But previously he had been a columnist, a colleague of mine at the Daily. Terrific. He's amazing, a brilliant guy. And he said something interesting, which you could, and actually, this actually, um, I'm shooting myself in the foot here because it actually does bolster David's argument about moderation, because you could argue that that by electing effectively a gridlocked Congress, voters put the brakes on anything effectively said, you know what? We want you to slow down. We're not interested. We're, we think you're too divided. We're not interested in your partisan crazy. Just stay deadlocked and don't do anything. Well, <laughs> don't do anything because well, that's there, what's going to happen. Yeah, there's a line of thought that that the voters don't want either party to get too much power. And they like to have the checks and balances of having the other party. And that is part of what we saw, I think, in in this election. Well, uh, the, there is there is a way of viewing it, such as that. But there's another way of viewing it, which I think is at least as accurate, which is that um, within each party, there's there's a high percentage of people who are really extreme ideologues on both parties. I thought he was going to say extreme idiots for a minute there. I did. I really did. Well, they may be that too, but they're extreme ideologues and neither side is moderate at all. Not only do they disagree, but they think the other side is evil. That's a a large part of the electorate. 
Can we just take a point though for one minute that we overlooked, which I think is significant. We were talking about Chuck Schumer and like retaining the majority. And yeah. I, I neglected to note, since this is technically speaking a legal podcast, the one thing that is a saving grace for uh, Joe Biden by retaining control, his party retaining control of the Senate is he continues to get his judicial appointments. Oh yeah. Oh, extremely. Oh my God. Yeah. Extremely important. Because remember it was the conservatives who, who, who quietly and consistently remade the lower courts, not the Supreme Court, right? But actually the courts that were slightly below that creating this pipeline. And um, I, and really a, um, a bulwark, you could argue, uh, that then subsequently um, established uh, uh, conservative um, statutory sensibility, I mean, across the courts. Right, and, and that's uh, significantly important for the next two years because there's still a number of federal judges that need to be appointed. Uh, the Senate will have uh, at least a, a, a 50 plus majority for the Democrats and, and uh, Joe Biden will be able to get those those judges in. And so I want to I think that's a good segue into what's going on at the Supreme Court. Mm. Um, we talked a little bit about affirmative action. Uh, we've had arguments on those two affirmative action cases, and I, I, I want to revisit those a little bit. Uh, Liz, you sent me a note earlier today that said that uh, the ABA, which yeah. uh, which provide oversees accreditation of law schools, has uh, decided that law schools no longer need to require LSAT scores in their applications because uh it might not be helpful for diversity but now we have two cases in the supreme court where the supreme court may be deciding that diversity is not something that can be even considered by a school uh when making decisions on uh who to accept into their into their schools I think well, you mean racial diversity racial they diversity. can consider all other kinds of diversity right so usually this is portrayed as a fight for merit admissions, which of course is a total fraud because they don't care about the people that don't like affirmative action. They don't, they don't seem to object too much to all other kinds of um, non-academic merit admissions uh, to the universities. They only care about things that, oh, race and gender. Bingo. I mean, come on, that tells you an awful lot. But now we're removing one of the elements of determining so merit, which is uh, a standardized test. And look, the, the schools no. could do a heck of a lot better in ensuring diversity of of all stripes, all kinds of diversity. Mm. Just be a little smarter in how you do it for crying out loud. For example, um, at Harvard, I forget what the exact figures are, but they're always touting, you know, the, the amount of diversity at Harvard, you know, how many minorities they have. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I forget, I saw the figure recently, maybe 70% of the minority students at Harvard are people who come from fairly well-to-do families. I mean, is that what affirmative action is about? I mean, come on, you know, if you want to say, look, what we want is we want to attract and admit students who come from the center cities, who come from poor families, who come from families where 
the parents had not gone to college, you could gain you could gain much of the same, if not even more diversity than you have right now. Um, the only that- thing I think the Supreme Court will say is that you can't say race. Okay, don't say race. Mm. Vin, we want to let you finish, but you never finish. Right? So <laughs> what do you mean? It's, you're you're you never done. You have a run-on sentence problem, Vin. Do you even breathe? <laughs> what were you gonna say, Liz? Encounter. I don't even remember because I he I tried to interrupt him three times and I was rolled over like a steamroller. I, I want to get the, the, the I want to give Liz the final word here on oh, affirmative action. No, I just yeah, please do. I think I think the real issue is that um or not the real issue. We know that the court, based on the dis, the the, the uh, arguments that we heard, the court's going to upend affirmative action. It looks right? that way. So the question is, there are t- there are a lot more. What will happen is schools will go around it. They'll they'll start doing automatic admissions. They'll take like you know the automatically admit uh, people from certain zip codes, or they'll automatically admit um, you know the first ten graduates of every high school class in this or that regional area or something. I mean, and that will be challenged. I mean, all these things will be subsequently challenged over and over again. But there's a whole different discussion to be had about the the viability of the higher education system, which is a different conversation altogether. Because the, um, just to be clear, there's a legal aspect to that, too, since the Biden administration has signaled an intent to ask the Supreme Court to step in on its student loan forgiveness plan. There's a, there's another point that I think is extremely important, which means that Liz will think it's not. Um, it's extremely important which is that with regard to affirmative action, if the United States Supreme Court uh, says that affirmative action is unconstitutional, states and state courts cannot say the opposite. However, with regard to the Dobbs decision where the Supreme Court says there is no constitutional right of a woman to have an abortion, first of all, the Supreme Court has no authority to say that. All they can say is that the federal constitution doesn't have a woman's right to choose. What this means is that maybe lawyers and judges and politicians will pay a little bit more attention to state courts because nothing the Supreme Court said stops the state courts from protecting a woman's right to choose. Absolutely nothing. That mm-hmm. this, because the Supreme Court has no authority to tell the New York Court of Appeals or the California Supreme Court or the Kansas Supreme Court that they cannot protect a woman's right to choose. And I think, and I welcome it, renewed attention to state courts and what state courts can do to protect our rights and liberties. Because you usually can't depend upon the Supreme Court anyway. Hmm. Well, I tried I tried to give Liz the last word, but then Vin took it back. And I think- And it was got, brilliant. And, it was brilliant. And I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad we did because it was, it was your finest moment. And all we got from Liz back for, is a, hmm. Hmm. We're going to close. We'll close with the. Hmm. Yeah. Liz is laughing right now. I'm trying to be I'm restraining myself because it's Friday and I feel like I don't want to be mean and like. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, I want to maintain my some of my retorts for the next time that we meet. You got to keep some things in reserve. It's not good to let it all hang out. Well, you did a good job of of keeping composed. Thank you. you kept, Thank you, David. I, I would say maybe maybe you should reconsider your run for governor. 
yes. <laughs> I, I think you've I think you've changed a few voters' minds oh, today. Yeah. Uh, my main problem is too many skeletons. Oh. My skeletons are having parties with my other skeletons <laughs> in the closet. All right, Liz, Ben, your skeletons. Always <laughs> wonderful to have you all with us here on Miranda Warnings. Until next time, stay well, and we'll we'll talk soon. Bye. Just wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review.